theologian Karl Barth once remarked, I take the Bible far too seriously to take it all literally. Now many of us feel the same way, not just because we don't read every single word of the Bible literally, but also because sometimes we take scripture far too seriously. When we handle scripture, we put on kid gloves. When we talk to it, we speak in hushed tones. Scripture is serious, so when we read scripture, we have to be serious too. The irony is that always taking scripture seriously can actually keep us from reading it faithfully. Sometimes we're meant to argue with scripture, sometimes we're meant to cry with it, and sometimes we're meant to laugh with it. Today's reading from Genesis is a good example of the last one. This is a reading that's meant to be playful. It's full of winking references and puns. To make that playfulness clear, we read a different translation today. Instead of the NRSV, we read from a new translation of the Hebrew Bible by Robert Alter, who teaches Hebrew at UC Berkeley. I don't use props often. This is a prop. This is about a third of this, his translation and notes. It took him about his entire professional career to translate the entire Old Testament. And you should have noticed it sounds different. It sounds a little awkward in certain parts, because that's how Hebrew reads. It's a little bit more urgent than the NRSV. And when you read that text, you notice that it's being playful with you. It's not a straightforward story about uh, Abraham just making a bunch of bread. So remember, Abraham and God have something of a history at this point. God has promised Abraham that he will be the ancestor of multitudes who will be a blessing to the nations. And God has promised Abraham that they will inherit the land of Canaan. So for Abraham and Sarah, the promise of descendants and land are symbols that their lives meant something. They have some kind of legacy. Their lives are more significant than the grains of sand that they live on. Now, you don't have to sympathize their wants to understand their desires. We all want something similar, to feel like life has some sort of meaning or purpose to it. We find it in family, in relationships, in work, in communities, in volunteering, any of the other vocations that we occupy. And we can deal with hardship if we think our lives have some kind of meaning to them. But Abraham and Sarah are getting close to the end of their lives, and they're thinking, well, it didn't mean anything. So they've received this promise from God, but they haven't actually gotten the blessings yet. And that's where today's reading begins. Abraham is outside his tent. He's waiting. Maybe he's wondering if he's ever going to get these blessings or if God is just stringing him along. And just then he looks up and he sees a group of three men. They're on a journey somewhere. Their silhouettes are waving in the heat. And Abraham thinks these men must be angels or something. God often shows up as angels in the Hebrew Bible. So think about what's going through Abraham's head at this moment. He's thinking, well, maybe I can remind them of the covenant, but what if they just walk by? I have to find a way to keep them here for a minute. So Abraham goes to the three men and says, let a little water be fetched and bathe your feet and let me fetch a morsel of bread. So he's basically saying, wow, it is super hot outside. You all look very tired. Why don't you just put your feet up for a minute? I have some trail mix and some water in the tent. Just hang out here. And then look at what he actually does. He runs back into the tent and yells, hurry. 
So he's trying to play it cool, but he's actually panicking. He tells Sarah to make bread from three seahs of flour. That's about six gallons of flour. So this is an absurd amount of bread. He has the best calf slaughtered and prepared. He brings out a bunch of milk. He brings out a bunch of curds. Abraham says, let me see if I have anything in the fridge. And then he sets out a feast that would make Julia Child jealous. So what Abraham does here is provide hospitality for God, which is kind of a loaded concept to think about. What does it mean to provide hospitality for God? We're used to God providing hospitality for us, the feeding of the 5,000, the Last Supper, and we're used to providing hospitality for other people. We have coffee hour and receptions and meals. We use food to show people that we appreciate their presence with us, to make them sure that they're welcome here. But what does it mean for us to be hospitable to God? Well, this is why you have to be a little bit playful. Who are the people who show up at Abraham's tent? We know it's God. In verse 1, the Lord, all caps, that's Yahweh, appeared to Abraham. But from Abraham's perspective, when Abraham looks out over the haze of the desert and sees these three men walking toward him, does he know if it's God? Well, sometimes he acts like it's God, and sometimes he acts like they're just strangers. So which is it, strangers or God? The answer, of course, is both. When God shows up, God is hidden. There's not a big neon sign that says, get ready, this is God. God shows up as a stranger. So the way you treat strangers is the way you treat God. When you tell strangers that they can't have a morsel of bread, when you tell strangers they need to go back to where they came from, that's effectively what you're telling God. But the opposite is true, too. When you create a new relationship with a stranger, you are welcoming God into the world. You're creating space for God to become more tangible. You make it possible for other people to believe in God. So we love God by loving strangers. Now back to the story. So God and Abraham are sitting outside eating this big meal that Abraham and Sarah had prepared. And if you're Abraham, you're feeling pretty good that you pulled this whole thing off. And then God remarks between bites, well, where is Sarah? Like, I know you didn't make all this food. Where is Sarah? She must be here somewhere. And Abraham concedes that Sarah is in the tent. And God remarks, your wife, Sarah, shall have a son. So now Abraham knows he's talking to God. He knows that God hasn't forgotten the covenant. The promise is still there. The future is open to this new thing that God's doing. There's still reason for hope. And what's Sarah do in this story? Sarah's eavesdropping behind the flap of the tent. And when she hears the promise that she's going to bear a child, what does she do? She laughs. She thinks, here's Alter's translation. After being shriveled, shall I have pleasure, and my husband is old. Pleasure in Hebrew is idna, which is a play on Eden. So again, Sarah is implying she no longer has the kind of life that God originally intended for her to have. In other words, she says, number one, I am probably too old to have a child. Number two, Moses is way too old to have a child. And number three, I don't find any pleasure in sex. 
And God listens to all that and looks at Abraham and says, Sarah thinks she's too old to have a child. Notice God leaves off all of Sarah's complaints about Abraham. The famous rabbi Rashi, who lived in France about a thousand years ago, wrote a commentary on Genesis. And he said that God left off the complaints about Abraham for the sake of the peace, which means God is trying to keep them from arguing. So whenever people tell you the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, you can tell them about this story where God is a marriage therapist. If you read the story seriously, then you miss all that. But when you read it playfully, suddenly Abraham and Sarah become real people with real problems, kind of like the problems that we have. The thing that's constraining Abraham's vision is anxiety. He's afraid. He's afraid he's going to do the wrong thing, and then he's going to lose the promise from God. So when God shows up, he's running around making this big feast, thinking, well, we have to make sure God has enough bread. But Sarah's different. Sarah doesn't think she's going to do the wrong thing. Sarah thinks that she's actually just wrong as a person. Abraham thinks I'm going to do something wrong. Sarah thinks I am wrong. Abraham is anxiety. Sarah is shame. But look at how God responds to Sarah's doubts. God says, is anything beyond the Lord? So what God says is that your vision is not the same as my vision. You have gone through your life and you don't see a whole lot of meaning in it. You don't see any purpose at the end of it. You think your life doesn't have meaning because you're the wrong type of person. But your vision is too narrow. And God's imagination is not constrained by your vision. The blessing you're going to get doesn't depend on whether you think you're worthy of it. It depends on God. Now maybe when you read the story you feel like Abraham. You think, my life is equally balanced between joy and despair, and my next choice is going to shift the balance. Or maybe you feel like Sarah. You think, it doesn't matter what I do, it's impossible for my life to have any meaning. I'm just trying to make it through the day. Our anxiety and our shame aren't impossible for God to overcome. Sarah does end up having a child, of course. Her life, which she thinks is meaningless, ends up blessing an infinite number of people. And more than that, an infinite number of strangers. People that Sarah doesn't know. People like you and me. And one of those strangers turns out to be Jesus. See, people always think that Abraham is the one who shows hospitality in that story. But Sarah does too. Because of God's covenant, Sarah's life ends up changing the world for all of us. That reminds us that even in the desert of our despair, a new world full of hospitality is possible. A world where God is tangible and real in our lives. And it comes to fruition whenever, like Sarah, we believe that what God says about us is actually true. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.